0: Hello everyone. Thanks for coming to the M Pavilion tonight. Um, I encourage you to all maybe calm down a little bit. Thank you. Um, so we're here today on the land of the Boon Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation um, and I'd like to acknowledge them as the traditional owners of the land and uh, I pay my respects to them um, and their elders past and present. Um, I'm Carrie, I'm from RMIT, um, and for those, and I'm also from SoNA, um, the team in Victoria. For those who don't know, SoNA is the student body um, of the Australian Institute of Architects. Um, and so this debate today is a part of a three-part series. Um, so last week we heard from the emerging architects um, on the digital image versus reality. Next week, we'll be hearing from established architects on housing affordability. And this week we're hearing from this enthusiastic group of students um, from different universities in Victoria. Our moderator tonight um, is Jackie, an architect, a writer, uh, editor of Post magazine and coordinator of the bachelor program at Monash University. Um, So I'll hand it over to her to introduce tonight's debate topic and also our speakers. Thank you.
1: Hi, thanks Carrie for your introduction and to Sona and the Institute of Architects for inviting me tonight to moderate what promises to be a very exciting debate um, this evening around tradition versus innovation in architecture. Before I begin, I'd also like to pay my respects to the traditional owners past and present of the land on which we're gathered this evening. Tonight's topic for debate is well-trodden territory and of course provided the impetus for some of the most important architectural movements and projects of the 19th and 20th century in response to the Industrial Revolution and the emergence of the sciences which rivaled history and religion for the first time. The debate between tradition and innovation played out in architecture during this period through both the celebration of and resistance to new materials and manufacturing techniques, new cultures of production and consumption and the global transmission of architectural ideas. Detractors included figures like Frank Lloyd Wright and the many proponents of the arts and crafts who resisted the dehumanising tendencies of production, including building, and wanted to see a return to the old guild model of the master craftsman. This same debate produced the Art Nouveau movement, whose proponents did not reject the tradition of ornament like their modernist counterparts, but found a middle ground in celebrating the possibilities for new materials like iron and steel to enable highly detailed, previously impossible, ornamental strategies. Or we can think of the avant-garde architects who rejected tradition favouring innovation, functionality, efficiency and universality above all else. But it's important to ask ourselves, why are we resurrecting this debate at a whole century later? Hasn't the Western world accepted that progress is our only inevitable trajectory? In actual fact, I think this is a very pertinent conversation to be revisiting at this particular time in history. In the contemporary post-industrial context, we're witnessing a new technological revolution. Architects are embracing digital fabrication techniques like 3D printing and new materials like carbon fibre which promise to advance the discipline and help solve some of the most pressing urban issues of the 21st century. As well as this, new digital economies and AI technology is transforming the home, the neighbourhood, the city and the globe with overt spatial consequences. Tradition versus innovation is very closely tied to a discussion about local versus global or culture versus science. What is the role of tradition in an increasingly globalised world? Who needs to learn a new language in the 21st century when Google Translate is at your disposal? Or indeed, everything is written in English. Is tradition disappearing faster than we recognise? Has Google, Instagram and Pinterest exposed us to the diversity of architectural attitudes that exist in the world today? Or is it in fact homogenising architectural outcomes are platforms like Airbnb affording us with the ability to experience the local qualities and character of homes around the world? Or is it that homes around the world are actually conforming to a five star marketable rating? In her lecture at Monash University on Wednesday night, UCLA academic Dana Cuff argued that the late capitalist imperative of innovation is closely linked to industry and privatization and the concept of developer as city maker. Should we embrace innovation at any cost? To unpack these questions and more, I'll now introduce our bright young speakers this evening who are here representing SONA and their respective academic institutions. We've got uh, Diana Panagaris um, and Leonie Sankey from Melbourne Uni Alana Razbash and Daniel Bickle-Lazzaro from RMIT and Isabella Peppard from Monash. Kim Huey is our time tyrant tonight and in a role that I hear she is especially good at, so watch out, speakers. <laughs> Following the speeches, we will conclude with a panel discussion and open up for questions from the floor. So without further ado, I'll pass over to our first speaker. Let's hear it for Deanna.
2: So first and foremost, I'd like to start by explaining my current architectural education, which is somewhat unconventional and maybe risky. I'm part of the 300-point program at the Melbourne School of Design, which means that essentially I have a background in something that's not architecture. So I started in urban design. I also have past experiences in graphic design and illustration, so somehow I ended up in architecture. This has been my first formal and may I say traditional year of architectural training. I have another two years alongside the other three to five year undergrad architecture students and will all hopefully graduate with the same qualifications. Perhaps the introduction of unconventional education like my own is reflecting an unconventional time with contemporary cities and their complexities calling for novel thinking, solutions and industry to add, I believe that innovation is quintessential to good design, with globalisation, economic and environmental forces impacting our architecture and cities. We're at a melting point of contemporary issues, including the integration of digital technology, rapid population growth and climate change. These modern problems require modern thinking. Although globalisation has lessened the physical distance between collaboration, thinking and making there is still intense differences that are presented with each unique local space. I believe that sensitivity and appropriateness towards geographic, demographic and time is perhaps the future of architecture. I want to read a quote by Bernard Toomey who suggested that architecture not only survives where it negates the form that society expects of it, where it negates itself transforming or transgressing, the limits that history has set for it. Maybe he meant that risk-taking will slow the rate of the inevitable decay and irrelevance in architecture and design. Since we're in the echoes of Cool House, I also wanted to (laughs) mention a quote from his magazine-slash-publication of content in 2004 where he stated that architecture is liberated from the obligation to construct. It It can become a way of thinking about anything... A discipline that respects relationships, proportions, connections, effects, the diagram of everything. So perhaps we are moving into an architecture that is multidisciplinary, distorted and informed by our multifaceted urban environments. Perhaps we're moving away from the singular client, the singular program and the singular history. And perhaps we're moving towards not only building for humans, but our natural and constructed environments, including machines and virtual realities. Rory Hyde in his text Future Practice um, describes the new architectural industry to engage with other practices and other kinds of designs and outcomes with inherited assumptions, assumptions of the design profession. <laughs> so, although I truly believe in innovation, I still think that tradition undermines and will always be respected for in architecture. But who are the 21st century thinkers that follow these postmodern ones, and what are the revolutionary systems or processes that our 21st century architects and designers formulated and will leave for the next century?
1: Okay.
3: Ooh.
1: I'd like to introduce Alana now to the stage. Thanks,
3: Alana. Thank you, and good evening, everyone. I contend that learning from the successes and mistakes of the past, learning from tradition, is what underpins innovation and allows us to move forward boldly and strongly towards progress. But I'd like to begin firstly by rebutting a few points and addressing this as so eloquently put by, on Monday Night at Process, this crisis of relevance that seems to have begun after Rory Hyde's publication of Future Practice in 2012. We mustn't kid ourselves that academia, publication, discourse, it's still a traditional method. It's been happening since the first book of, of, on architecture ever written by Vitruvius. It's still a traditional path, um, and it's a fantastic thing that we should all continue doing and supporting each other in this endeavour of publication, and and expanding our practice to these greater, broader fields, venturing in advocacy, um, and promotion. And as we know, that orga- organisations and groups such as Open House do, and as- assemble papers that it's available for us here this evening, a branch that comes out of fieldwork, but ultimately. We, we still must build for as long as people need places to live, for as long as children need somewhere to learn, for as long as we need somewhere to work, to grow old, to die, we still need buildings, we still need architecture, and it's our responsibility and our imperative professional onus to deliver that. And... Yes, there will be practitioners that will still engage with our profession and engage with discourse and ideas of architecture. And they will never want to build a building in their life, and that is fantastic as well. But buildings are still required. Buildings are still essential. I'd I'd like to also define innovation, that innovation isn't something new. Because nothing, nothing new exists anymore. However, innovation is adaption, it's adaption to new problems, it's adaption to climate change, it's adaption to social concerns, and as we become a more diverse body of colleagues, we, as, as we become more diverse in our practice, we're able to adapt to these questions and adapt to technology. Another, another important thing is to say that innovation not only being stylistic and ideological and that of differing business models such as Nightingale or um, more design-driven development such as that of Fieldwork and Neo Metro, tradition is, as we can understand in terms of business models, following the general taste and zeitgeist, following the same decades of discourse, And it, tradition is safe but restrictive. So we need to learn from these things. We need to learn what went wrong and what was successful and push on forward to include everyone in the future of architecture. Thank you.
1: Maybe I can introduce from here. <laughs> okay. Uh, welcoming to the stage, Alana. Alana. Oh, sorry, Leonie. <laughs> Apologies, Leonie.
4: So, um, like the other, um, I have come from a different background in... Um, well, and not background in architecture. Um, I have... Um, sorry, let me... <laughs> I've worked as a graphic designer and UX designer for many years before making the change to architecture, um, more as a role of being the interpreter from non-designer to the experience. And from what I can see in probably a a simplistic understanding of what architecture is at the moment is that the same thing is happening in uh, architecture that it is changing. There's definitely um, a change that's happening that I see to be a shift of the... Safety of a building becomes more of the role of the engineer so that architects can then focus on the design and the experience of the building itself. Um, with innovation versus tradition, I think it's really not an argument because we need both. Um, there's important lessons to be learned from the past um, and there's a lot of great ideas there that could not be realised at their time because the technology was not available. Uh, and innovation has now given us that technology so there's an opportunity to revisit those past ideas. Um, I've a great example here, which I invite you to come have a look at through the pictures, which is a set of stairs developed for a woman who has MS um, living in a heritage building in the Edinburgh. And the solution was to build uh, hydro- 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 hydraulic stairs covered with the natural stone of the area so that... Um, she could meet the planning restrictions of the area without having to compromise her lifestyle. So that, to me, is why we need both. There's not one or the other. Um, and it would just be foolish to completely disregard um, Yeah, one or the other. Uh, there is... There's lots of innovation also in the design process. So there's traditional techniques and things that we would not want to lose in traditional masonry, for example, but there's also new technologies coming that give us better opportunities to build. There's, um, in the process as well, there's new technologies such as visual, um, virtual reality and augmented reality, which help the architects again, architects again shift away from thinking about the structural integrity of the buildings that we had to do in the past. Um, to focus more on the esoteric aspects of design and that have underlying ben- benefits to the user. So I'd like to finish just by saying that architecture and design is using the present to build on the past and improve the future. So as simplistic as that may be, I think that's where we need to keep um, a fund- like, uh, coming from a fundamental place to make sure that architecture remains relevant in the future. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Leonie. Okay, now we're going to hear from Daniel. Thank you.
5: Hey. Um, so I'm Daniel, and I just finished my second year at RMIT. Um, and, yeah, I just want—I agree. I think you kind of need both, don't think there's kind of a one-way solution to this. So it's, like, complexity and contradiction, right? Um, but, okay, so my talk. So, so I'm more interested in talking about why I think innovation in architecture has been pretty unsuccessful for us architects in recent times. Uh, but before I get into that, I should probably define what I mean by innovation in architecture. So I'm defining innovation as the practices of architecture that claim their design and construction methods are innovative, such as practices of Zaha Hadid, Foreign Office Architects, or more close-to-home Roland Snooks. So they can also kind of be known as like bottom-up architecture. So in the design, so you design the process of the architecture as opposed to the outcome of the architecture, and you allow that to create the form. Uh, so my issue with this design stream is that the outcomes are essentially blobs, and that's about it. So how does one judge a blob? Is it blobby enough? Does it curve the right way? Did a flower in Southeast Asia swell the same way as that building one time, so therefore it's the most efficient swell? It's hard to really judge the building on anything more than aesthetic qualities, which they claim are derived from fundamental mathematical truths. Uh, So whilst you might think it did a shit curve, they claim it doesn't matter because the curve is derived from some mathematical theorem. So the proclamation is that the design is good because the algorithm is good, and the algorithm is good because the algorithm is complex, or it has never been done before, or it's somehow pushing the boundaries of architecture. Even though they never specify what those boundaries are, and I don't believe architecture is a study of materiality. So they claim to follow natural truths provided, by them by, provided to them by nature, then translated into the built form, as if the natural world in the jungle is more advanced in our own societies. And then they ask us to, instead of critically thinking about things, instead trust that nature knows what's best for us and let it take over. They claim all this whilst they design lar- the largest white, flowy buildings in the deserts of Saudi Arabia for oil tycoons. Uh, <laughs> So, because their proclamations aspire to deny critique of their form, I'll instead look to this idea in, that's manifested in the planning of their buildings. So, in forest, for, uh, Foreign Office Architects Ravensburg College in London, FOI, FOA aspired to create a flexible learning landscape that will narrow the gap between education and industry experience. It's full of half levels, avoided core, unprogrammed space, uh, supposedly for the student to ascertain what the best use of the space is. By pushing their university education as a way for students to learn how to commodify their design skills in the industry and find the best use of the space provided to them, as opposed to actually programming the space, they've actually, by not programming the space, they've actively saying to the students that they have to be responsible for the value of their own design ability. Instead of teaching critical theory and promoting students' abilities to understand what is actually good or bad in architecture, They're instead trying to promote the idea that the industry market will define that for them by either paying them or not paying them. In this sense, they're now promoting the idea that we cannot be critical and instead should follow the inherent laws of the market. (laughs) Because the market doesn't think it is closer to a natural resource so that if we can manifest the market um, theory into our built form, we'll be creating the best architecture. I think this sort of thought process is actually regressive, and, I will, and it will cause bad buildings to be designed, whilst furthering economic inequality in society through architecture, even if it's labelled innovative. I think critical. I okay, got
1: <laughs> You'll get your chance to finish off that thought. Okay. Last but not least, Izzy. Please welcome her.
6: So I'm in, I just finished first year masters at Monash and I'm on the innovation side. Just to be clear if you don't get it already from my hefty speech. When we think about innovation we might instantly think of space shuttles, driverless cars, drone farming and Airbnb. That's what comes to mind. But innovation has a long history with architecture. For example, the rolled I-beam came from the rail industry, Forda's model of production from the car industry and Stacked Elevator have all contributed to how we find our lives today and in particular, define economic progress. The definition of innovation by the Oxford Dictionary is to make changes to something established, especially by introducing new methods, ideas or products. Its origin is mid-16th century Latin from words that mean renewed and to make new. So these advances in methodology, ideas and products can be architectural, or they can be a hybrid of architecture and another industry, which has already been raised before, that produces a technological innovation. And I would argue that this is the direction we should head in. Of course, don't worry, Daniel. I don't mean innovation for the sake of iconicity or in its buzzword form justifying star architecture or promoting capital. Instead, I'm going to focus on some of the practical applications of technological innovations using a few examples, or 10. Continuing from historic structural innovations on that mindset, tools such as finite element method allow us to simulate and calculate structural failures to a degree not previously possible, allowing a range of material innovations. There are other ways to experiment um, now and innovate with materials such as Giuseppe Falacara's stereotomy work that cuts and assembles stone in a way that produces almost zero waste and creates amazing geometries while at it not purely aesthetic. So for another resource reduction, to reduce energy consumption and allow more flexibility for solar panel application, yeah, those ugly things on people's roofs, innovations like thin photovoltaic film that can blend better with form and aesthetics that full solar panels, again, this one innovation um, can allow more innovations as direct or indirect results. Thirdly, A predicted outcome of climate change is of course, mass migration and the need to accommodate people for longer in temporary situations. Better Shelter, a project by IKEA, utilizes industry position and power to produce a simple housing solution. I think we can do better than this, but it's a good example. Um, on the other side of climate change and refugees is the conflict that resource depletion will bring. To expose this and bring perpetrators to justice, we can look at the work of forensic architecture, is doing spatializing war zones and analysing war actions in 3D, bringing together knowledge from forensic science with our unique architectural skill set. Most of the examples I have mentioned have come from outside the architectural profession. So my question would be, why are we debating this? We are already failing behind other professions in our own profession. Innovation is key to proving that we can act like architects and that our skills are not obsolete.
1: Okay, thanks, speakers. Okay, well, there have been some interesting points raised so far. So I think we'll have a um, panel discussion now and speak to our ...panelists about um, their thoughts on some of the emerging themes... ...that have cropped up in their speeches. So one thing that um, seems to emerge... Um, as, a, ...as a key um, reiterated point throughout the speeches... ...was the kind of changing nature of the discipline at the moment... Um, ...with the sort of innovation at the moment... ...or the recent innovation of the uh, dis- diversification of education in architecture. So students coming from all sorts of different backgrounds to study architecture um, now. And so how do we think that that changes? Is that innovative inherently? Is that um, going to see completely different and innovative results in terms of architectural outcomes? Maybe I'll um, pass that over to our first speaker, Diana.
2: I... I think inevitably it will bring a new level of knowledge into architecture, probably similar to what you were speaking about as well just before. Um, I also believe that it will create a hybrid. Perhaps it won't even be as architecture. It could be a breakdown of the boundaries in which conventional practice normally adheres to. And I think that it will benefit The multidisciplinary communities that we are somewhat moving towards
4: yeah um, i agree i think um, architecture is looking to um, break down and specialize you can see this happening in the it industry where they've got architects for all sorts of areas Um, they've got social architects social engineers that look at how they can structure computer systems to promote certain behaviours within the community. Architects can do that in the same way using a different skill set. So there's a, yeah, there's a space for social architecture among all of this and you know, numerous other areas as well.
1: So we're sort of suggesting that um, really what's potentially um, an outcome of all of this in the future is that maybe architecture isn't simply about buildings... I heard a panelist was it Alana maybe um, discussing directly the role of architecture um, and associating it with buildings specifically. Do you want to elaborate
3: a bit on that Alana uh certainly Rory Hyde's book interviews practitioners who have alternative ways of doing architecture um, They advocate, they write, they speculate, they take up roles in politics. But I want to say that this is this is still a traditional gesture to to write to write and discuss and debate architecture. And once upon a time, architects did have a key, integral position in public and civic life, and in advocacy and forming of policies and governing cities and um, societies in societies pre ours and much earlier times, for as far as we can recall. And somehow we've managed to disengage ourselves from this and become insular in our discourse and insular in our conversations and have, have discussions of architecture for architects and not not thinking about the communities and the people that we serve and from within devaluing ourselves. So when the initial topic was posted online on of traditional values, well, that's a really loaded question because what are traditional values? The sole key practitioner, probably stale, male, straight and white, uh, to the exclusion of all others. And today we we have Parler to thank for pushing for gender equality in architecture. We have Sonar working working hard with the Institute for um, fair remuneration and a fair award and fighting uh, un- unpaid internships. So we, ne- we need to be supporting each other. We need to be supporting architecture and supporting buildings and talking to everyday and ordinary people about the value that architecture can bring. So certainly all these practitioners that Rory Hyde interviews and in segments doesn't draw too many conclusions with but all these people that are operating on the fringes of architecture this is absolutely fantastic and we should keep going with that. But buildings are absolutely critical because we still need them and if we let ourselves down and if we pull out from this and if we, 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 if we pull out from physical architectural production, then that void will be filled by, by something else and that'll be filled probably by other agencies and bodies driven by power, or by profit or by other f- forms of control. Um, we can go forth down the tunnel of artificial intelligence and... Where that line is, in 2015, an open, there was an endeavour to try and sign 150 academics signed an open letter a warning of the dangers of AI. So we were touched this evening on generative design and algorithms in design and parametric modelling. That's still in the hands of our control, but you know, where, is, where is ultimately the limit? Yes.
1: Does anyone else want to respond to that? Yeah.
5: <laughs> so I would argue that uh, the kind of the, the blending pot of disciplines is actually more so an attempt to try to find a way to make all students marketable. So instead of actually saying that you're, you know we need to have value every single discipline, we're actually just saying that you need to just find a way to sell your trade. So it doesn't matter whether that means that you actually don't study, and it's actually fine if you just uh, communicate with other people that. You're in the rest of your course so you can all go start a business and have a vague knowledge that you can sell. Um, what I think is actually way more important is having a commitment to uh, certain disciplines by not do- diluting disciplines, by having like, a critical engagement with architecture. You know, there's no, I don't think the solution to architecture is to not study architecture. It's to actually study architecture to a higher degree and be more critical about the role of the architect. And if that means that we find out that architects are useless, then maybe we shouldn't be architects. But that's for us to find out through that process, not by shying away from it.
6: I think it's important in architectural education to be exposed to other disciplines. Um, I know where I'm from. We have massive discourse with engineers, um, engineering students. We have double degree. um, And we can take electives from around the uni. Um, I took an art subject last semester which was very random and a kind of regret but <laughs> um, it did expose me to other ways of thinking about the same topics. We did a lot of urban studies um, and this brought up, you know, we did geographic mapping and this brought a whole different lens um, that I can use and tell other people who are studying architecture um, about. I also did a sort of engineering-like subject um, this semester. and. You know, we we learnt about how engineering and architecture have been separated out when they shouldn't be, in my opinion, Um, and probably in a lot of people's opinion, because people, um, they get segmented. And, you know, when you work at firms that are sort of traditional and corporate firms, um, you sort of realise that you get pigeonholed quite quickly, um, you know, into drafting or, you know, you're not really able to be um, as collaborative as everyone might want to think. So, um, it's important that we do collaborate, I think, and I think, you know, having, bringing your experience from different areas is important um, to your own profession and not just, um, you know, having the stale same ideas um, regurgitating across every firm in Melbourne as is somewhat happening recently. Um, yeah bring in other in outside influences.
4: Yeah, if I, if I can agree with that. Yeah, but I, I don't think it's about the architect being marketable or being pigeonholed. I mean, that is certainly something that needs to be blown up um, and gotten rid of. But the change in what architecture needs to become is working more with other industries. I mean, there was um, an example brought up where the... Um, the idea of public housing has been abandoned in the late 20th century. I would argue, no, it hasn't. It's just that architecture realised that design is not the the way to solve it. It's a collaboration with design and and a lot of other industries, including mental health and um, social workers, that will bring that solution around. So, yeah, collaboration is what needs to happen.
1: I'd like to come back to this point in a moment um, that... You raised, David, about um, the sort of intertwined... Sorry, Daniel. (laughs) Sorry, Daniel. Um, About the intertwined kind of relationship between uh, progress and sort of economics or the marketplace. Um, But before um, we move on to that, I think um, just while we're on this topic of agency and the agency of architects, isn't um, innovation what... Kind of separates architecture from other building practitioners like um you know drafts people and people occupying this kind of space whoever Um, wants to respond
5: yeah no sure um no for sure i mean i I don't think i i don't think drafts people would be the right thing but like i like i don't think that uh, engineers can't be innovative and I don't think that architects shouldn't work with engineers. I just think that architects should be architects and engineers should be engineers. And if you go to university to study engineering, you study engineering. If you, go to architecture, if you go to school to study architecture, you study architecture. And then you use your combined knowledge, like deep knowledge, through a higher education of those fields to then work together to create something, a collaborative outcome that has a high level as opposed to diluting everybody's knowledge where you just get down to a point where if we have bare bones, like, you know, I don't, I don't know the history of like Greek mythology, and I don't think studying it for a semester is going to make me that much better. But if somebody who spends five years studying it can find the value in that, and then we can collaborate and use the value that to create a better outcome. So.
1: A counter argument to that might be that we're sort of seeing the end of specialization. That you know the internet has made it possible for everybody to look up their medical symptoms and they no longer have to visit the doctor. Um, You know, everyone watches Backyard Blitz and thinks that they're a landscape architect now. Um, So, I suppose, do do you think that there's something innovative in that position as well? Where where do we see... Do we see that um, the agency of architecture relies on this kind of specialisation...
2: I think it's really great that people have the ability to access architecture and design via the internet and I feel that it'll engage more people in the industry and also provide a different perspective rather than an institutionalized perspective that one may just get from university and I also think that it will inspire and bring a different perspective Um, and I just on what you said before Daniel I think that Um, unfortunately buildings aren't just for architecture they're for people as well and engineers and they somewhat manifest into one built form and I believe that there needs to be a little bit of knowledge from each discipline integrated so that you can have a collaborative process. I don't think I could get into the industry without knowing a little bit of engineering a little bit of urban planning and then obviously architecture in order to create a functional building.
4: Yeah like Yeah, I agree with Diana. It's like totally not um, homogenising architecture. In fact, the more people are using Google to look up specific parts of architecture means the more we need to specialise in those parts that people are looking up in order to be the specialist that they go to. I mean, you know, use the example of health. Well, if you start a cough, the first place you go is your GP and then your GP will look at you and think, oh, well, you actually need to go see this specialist to go and find out what's properly going on and get the proper tests. The same sort of thing can now happen in architecture where we can start looking at all of these niches really delicately and dissecting them to get a better result.
1: I think we're talking a lot about um, people coming to architecture from th- more diverse backgrounds in the contemporary context. Um, but. We haven't really spoken about the opposite, which is architects moving out into other fields and using their expertise for other endeavours. Do you think? Do, does anyone want to respond to that? Does anyone want to speculate on the future of architects being involved in other fields? Um, well, I, I've heard quite a bit
4: that you know I'm I'm coming from UX design um, when I've been studying at UniMelb this year um, that there's an opportunity for architects to actually go into UX design. And I would totally agree with that. Um, the things that we're learning about structuring um, the way people experience space are transferable to the digital realm. So, you know, I, I spent a long time in companies dev- developing um, apps that, um, you know, would sell a, p- a product um, or an experience. It's just taking those skills out of a digital dimension into the real world.
3: I'd like to add to that that we're incredibly privileged to be studying a path of education that offers us such a diverse skill set, such a transferable skill set and such a a capable skill set. But to answer your earlier question, Jackie, of what separates us from other building practitioners and that's the ability to administer and deliver a contract ultimately architecture is a service and we need to respect and collectively support that professionalism of the discipline
5: uh, just back on to your point i think that yeah if you go into other industries like that's fine i just don't think you're not an architect like you're still you're still studying architecture and you come out with an architecture degree and like, you can have a company that has an architect and a graphic designer in it. It doesn't have to be defined by what the company defines itself as. Like, if you go to an architecture firm, there's a graphic designer in an architecture firm. And the reason why you hire a graphic designer as opposed to just getting an architect to do it is because they know how to do it better. They spend five years studying it. Like, that's, that's what they've learned. <laughs> the same way you wouldn't want somebody to go into, another, like into an architecture firm that didn't study architecture because they wouldn't know the same things we spent five years studying. And if unless we define that there is no value in studying for five years in architecture, because and if there isn't, then we should all just go and go into the marketplace and sell out whatever we can for whatever it's worth. You know.
6: I think well, in in my firm um, where I work, the the graphic designer did do full architecture degree five years, um, and then he moved to graphics because he was sick of not being creative enough. Um, and so they hired him based on the fact that he had that experience and he, it's just an interesting point, I'm not really rebutting you here but, um, you know, your skills are transferable but also in the 2D sense, not just the 3D senses as been mentioned so that's worth an input too and um, I think this point of academia is really interesting um, and how um, a lot of people move out of architecture I, I know I was trying to do very practical Um, based studios but then I found myself in quite a theoretical studio this semester um, because I was really drawn to it and the possibilities or I guess the creativity it allowed and I think that's what takes a lot of people out of um, practical work is that they don't feel like they have that creative um, outlet and they feel like you know in their first few years out they're really just doing other people's ideas and that deters them whereas in maybe art Um, You know, you go out and hopefully, you know, you're working for yourself. You get to continue with your creative um, tangent into practice. Um, But for us, that sort of gets cut off in a number of ways unless you do very um, market or uh, industry-based studios at uni. Um, But in a lecture by Dana Cuff um, on Wednesday night, which Jackie mentioned, um, she's talking about how, you know, academia doesn't just have to be non-practical work and you can use your positions... Um, within publications and um, you know within universities to actually promote different ideas while you've got that platform um, and you know so they built with students uh, a prototype um, to catalyst what would be possible for one of City Labs projects um, and I think that is just sort of like how I guess you can translate. Academia into architecture at any point, but it's just the willingness, and you can translate any different discipline back into architecture, or it's transversible. But we sort of get told not to do that, and I think it's important to open that back up, look at different precedents if you're interested in that, um, and keep the debate going on the side and always look out for opportunities.
1: I think that's an interesting point, Izzy, and you know, one of the things that we sort of know about architecture is that we sort of become generalists in many ways. I mean, we're specialised in architecture, but we do know a lot about – well, we do know a little bit about a lot of different things, which makes us kind of unique um, in terms of other kinds of professions. So, how we apply that um, and and what uh, other fields that um, might learn from our ability to connect disparate dots um, is an interesting thing to consider. But I think I just want to um, go back to some of the questions. I think we've, we've got to wrap up in a minute and pass over to questions from the floor, but just getting back to some of the questions posed in the introduction about this kind of idea that we're currently facing um, issues of the marketplace in architecture, issues of globalisation, global economies, um, digital economies. And in the face of all of this... Um, ...we're effectively sort of becoming... ...well, we could argue that we're becoming uh, much more... ...in in the fact that we're much more connected now via the internet... ...and um, via things like Pinterest and Instagram... ...that our architectural cultures are homogenising... ...and we sort of mentioned that earlier in the panel discussion. So how do we... ...how much progress is too much progress is what what I'm interested in asking. And how do we preserve some of the traditions that um, we really hold dear to our identities in this kind of climate?
2: I think the answer to that would probably be respect the context. So respect the local um, surrounds, respect where the architecture is, and perhaps not give in to global forces and a homogenization. Obviously, there's advancements with technology, which can help the localization of places. But to uphold that identity while perhaps um, building and designing, I think, is really important. Um, and to also be open to that new de- technology and the digital regime.
6: I think it's important also to work within your constraints and know how to be subversive in architecture and... Um, sort of get a, you know, find a way to sorry, achieve, um, you know, your ideal. Um, and, you know, often we have this great idea that sort of gets driven out of the design process when you're designing for capital. Um, but to try and always keep it there in some form and fight for what you want and also, you know, also have the back of your mind that we have these skills, we can also, you know, if we need to, unfortunately, promote things as... You know, like having this great public space or could be like value capture. Um, But, you know, really what you're trying to do, you have your own agenda always. Um, And to carry that through and be strong with that, I think is um, to be true to
3: architecture. I think we should all take a Hippocratic Oath. It's not always possible to be hugely provocative or a huge agitator or push that idea, as we've already mentioned it, might be diluted or value managed or something else might happen to it but if we can at least all agree on doing no harm then that's already a huge bonus.
1: What happens when you're operating as the
3: agent of someone else who wants to do harm? That's... Oh no no indeed, oh no indeed but that's, that's, that's a decision... That that this, this, the the practitioner would have made, um, and that's perhaps a moral judgment people have to make in all careers and all professions. Um, where where do I sell out? Where do I stick up for what I believe in? Um, is this a, is this important? Is this do or die? Is this make or break? It's very it's incredibly privileged to be able to start your own practice, to be able to um, even pursue a side project. So, in the, in the face of such a decision, cost-benefit analysis, is always.
1: I think we're, we're getting the wrap-up. So, just, Daniel, maybe if you can summarise that point that you're burning. Yeah, yeah,
5: I won't say too much. Um, I would say, like, you know, a lot of architects are kind of forced into that position. Like, we do horrible multi-residential buildings that kind of... Do, like, we have a horrible housing crisis, yet we're continuously making, like more and more taller and taller residential buildings. So, like, we're not solving any problem. There's clearly an issue there. Like, we're just selling off apartments that don't get lived in for ridiculous amounts of money, so people have to get pushed out to the outskirts of the city. And and every office does it. Like, every design, you know, OMA does it. Like, ARM does it. And Like, every firm does it. And because we're forced to, because you have to make money, because developers dictate the market. So there's a big criticism there, and I think that's the reason why you actually have to say that Architecture is important, not making money is important. So, yeah, I don't, I'll leave it
1: there. I think that's a really interesting point to end on. Um, and, you know, it does recall a lot of the architecture of radical of the 1960s and 70s who were riling against all of this sort of market-led development even back then. So, you know, I think there's still, still work to do in that arena. Um, we might just quickly pass over to a few questions from the floor if anyone has one. I can see a hand up over here.
5: I guess my question is um,
1: with countries sort of on a more world scale becoming globalized, um, say for example, Australia following a lot of the trends of the US and sort of that Western world, can that be translated into, say, a design context with a lot of, I guess, merging of industries coming? Like, will the merging of different industries come sort of globalised in a way and where do people find their identity in their professions and their speciali- specialities?
2: That's a huge question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess you just have to be true and authentic to what you like and what aspects you want to pursue if it is in architecture. And I guess that will formulate which areas you will find yourself working in Um, and perhaps globalization will allow you to discover more interesting aspects of architecture as well. So I don't see it perhaps as a negative but more as um, interest in what other cultures and what other communities are investing in.
4: Yeah, I, I agree. It's really about the context of, you know, where you're working at, what kind of change you want to see in the world and be. And you know what's going to make you feel complete <laughs> in in your career, so you know that's you know what and what ratio you know you need to do um uh in specialization so
7: mm. okay. um uh if you're talking about context, i think um I'm a practitioner and a teacher um and have been i came to Melbourne because there is a culture there was a culture here built in the 80s of the idea that architecture is not not, not a pragmatic uh, profession, it's actually an academic um, endeavour and that the history of architecture and how we respond in the contemporary has to be understood in how the history of architecture has developed. And so rather than seeing it just as a sort of um, instrumental profession, um, a lot of us around that time were arguing that, that, that uh, when unemployed that we should argue about architecture, we should understand architecture, should we teach architecture, not teach professionalism and things like that, which you will learn, but that we understand what the history of our own architecture. And um, the magazine Transition, the Half Time Club, Peter Corrigan, that whole tradition in Melbourne, let me tell you, did not exist in another city in Australia when I first came here. Now it's a bit more... Disseminated, but it was those people wanting to say, we are architects, we are going to study architecture and we're going to teach architecture and we're going to practice architecture is what has built the profession in my view, what makes it different in this city. And this pavilion is actually built by someone who has the same idea in my view about what architecture is about and that's why it's here. So I, th- I would encourage students to not see architecture as a, as a a way of making a living or anything but trying to understand what architecture c- it can and is. is in. The, you know, public housing is, if you want to get into public housing, you've got to get into politics. We don't have public housing. We haven't built public housing in Melbourne for 30, 40 years. We just don't have it. And so what we've got is crap, other kinds of housing, okay? Um.
0: Hi, I've actually got a question. Um, So, for
1: each of the panellists, you are given a brief. You have a residential block in an older suburb with a Californian bungalow on it and it's perfectly serviceable and it's structurally sound. And we've talked tonight about innovation being adaption for new technologies or new materials. What would each one of you do Would you, with that block, with that bungalow? Would you renovate it, would you restore it or would you raise it to the ground?
5: Can I just ask, what's the problem with it?
3: No, it's structurally,
1: it's, it's structurally sound and uh, a new family is moving in and they just want an architect-designed home.
4: Did they want to knock it down?
5: Take it, Wait, no, no, no okay.
0: yeah. yeah, that's okay. right. So oh. they want well, to move in. Well, that
4: that actually is my professional counsel. Yes. So as a client, I would talk to you, yes. find out what it is your desires are that you want to see on that site. If you wanted to keep that building, then we will. And we'll find out how we can use new technologies um, to give you warmer walls, better insulation um, and, you know, the experience that you want in that house. If you wanted to knock it down and build something completely different, then that's another avenue we could take. But it's really about starting with building that client relationship before you even start drawing.
2: So you've all got different positions around the traditional values versus the innovation imperative. So speaking as individuals and not just looking at it from the point of view as what does the client really want or what's the client prepared to pay for, in your own hearts, looking at it from your own value sets, what's
3: your feeling about that challenge? We would have to analyse the context, the neighbourhood, which, which city, which suburb, where in Australia this was located, the... I think maybe
1: if I can interject here, the panellists who have responded to summarise, I think are saying that it would be a case-by-case case situation depending on the, the embedded qualities of the building itself and its context. And it's difficult with such a sort of generalised scenario to maybe make a call on that, if I yeah, can speak oh, on.
3: Completely. But following on from the earlier comment at the mention of Transitions and Corrigan and the Halftime Club, uh, p- their, their contention was, and Lachie would have to agree, that architecture is about hope and architecture and about ambition. And in the case of the client in the bungalow, it would be giving and fulfilling the hope and the ambition on the case-by-case basis of that client. But at the, at the same time, we can add to hope and ambition, we can add problem-solving and seeing what we can figure out.
5: Yeah, so I guess what I would say is that essentially when, like, if you're going to do a building, you want to, like, acknowledge, you know, what are the issues? Ref, ref up. <laughs> okay. Okay, yeah, I'll just finish So We're getting the wrap-up, basically. Um, So you just have to look at what the issues are with the building. Like, So does it not have enough space? Are you having three more kids and you need another room or something like that? So therefore you need to build an extension, but you want to do a good extension. So then you get the architect to decide what that good extension is. But if there is no problem with the house and there's no broader problems with the societal housing issue, or there's no problems whatsoever, then I don't see a reason to change anything if there's not a problem.
2: Can I quickly add in before I get cut off? I think aside from the context and what is being proposed on the site, if there is something there or not, I think there's still room for history to be preserved in our suburbs, cities or wherever which this building exists. I think it would be vital for our communities to look back on what type of architecture was there and I still think there is room for them to stay.
6: And I think there'd be more, also room for innovation and also um, a new housing typology that involves maybe a community garden or a second dwelling for refugees. Whew,
1: I think we're going to have to leave it there before they roll us all out. But um, could everybody please join me in thanking the panel for their very insightful comments this evening? It's been really great. And um, thank you all for coming. And
6: thank you, Jackie. <laughs> Thank you.